the biggest problem in education is the giving of answers to questions that have not yet been asked. Like how many times do we walk in and we're like, today we're going to learn about factoring polynomials. Like nobody cares, but that's what I have to teach you because you need to know this by the end of the year, right? And why don't we spend a few minutes thinking about why is this math? Why do they need it? And why is it interesting? I You're listening to a great educator, math consultant, and Math and Plus Academy founder, Dr. Raj Shah. We chat with Raj today about how to make math class irresistible. Although Raj found a love for math early in his own mathematical educational journey, he quickly realized that not every student found math to be as irresistible as he did. In this episode, we chat about how to harness the elements of video games that make them so addictive and how we can apply them to our math classes. We chat about how to build culture, a culture of discussion, creativity, and problem solving in our classrooms. And we also chat about how to use the power of mystery to engage our students. Stick around because this is an episode you don't want to miss. John, go ahead and push play on that wonderful intro music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Are you ready, John? For sure, for sure, Kyle. I'm particularly impressed in this episode with Raj's enthusiasm towards teaching math. I found myself nodding along as he spoke about his experiences in the classroom and what he's done to make changes for his students. I'm sure you at home right now or in the car or on your run will also be nodding along with us. Come along. Here we go. Before we get into the interview, one of our favorite books that both John and I read this past year is The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay Stanier. And believe it or not, both John and I actually listen to this book in audio format while driving, running, or just relaxing. Now you too can do this for free because Amazon's Audible platform is offering two free books by going to makemathmoments.com forward slash free book. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash free book. If you like podcasts, then two free audiobooks with Audible is the way to go. And now here is our interview with Dr. Raj Shah. Hey there, Raj. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are so pleased that you've joined us today. How are things going? Just a short trip down the highway down in Ohio. Things are going well. Can't complain. Waiting for my snowstorm to arrive. Oh, Oh, no. One of those still coming. Do we have one coming, John? Like, we're not that far away. I didn't see that on my radar. But what do you got coming on, Raj? People tell me it's supposed to snow all day today, but it hasn't started yet. So, so far, so good. All right. Well, stay warm inside on this podcast interview here with us. We're really excited to have you. So, yeah, we want to dive in and get to know a little bit about yourself. So can you let people at home know who is Raj and, you know, what's your math story? Okay, my math story. Let's see. So I always tell people I've been in love with math. I've had an affinity for math as far back as I can remember. So... I don't know why I can't explain why I felt that way about math, but I was the kind of kid who'd go to the library and get books on math and read them and do puzzles and brain teasers and stuff like that. So I kind of started off that way. I always enjoyed math class, no matter how boring it was. I thought it was fun. And, you know, that sort of led me down this path of going to college. I got a degree in physics, 
And I worked at Intel for nine and a half years doing research and development. Loved it. I lived out in Oregon, which was amazing. And then I just got this itch to do something different. And deep down, I think I've always been a teacher. You know, I can remember sitting in my seventh grade math class and thinking, I want to remember what it feels like not to know this stuff so that when I have to teach it to somebody, I can help them make better sense of it. And I don't imagine that that's normal. So, you know, it's always been in there. And so I quit my job and I started this company called Math Plus Academy here in Columbus, Ohio, after school enrichment program for kids, just trying to get kids excited about math. And here we are. It's like 11 years later. I think today is actually my 11 year anniversary of starting that business. And, you know, now I get to work with teachers and I get to work with kids and I get to talk to parents and just try and make people realize that math is pretty freaking amazing. You touched a little bit, I think, on something you reflected on and something that we ask everybody on the show is about a memorable math moment from when you were a student that kind of just jumps into your brain and how that had affected you as a learner or even just as a human being. Is there something popping in your brain right now? Like It also could be like you as a teacher or as an educator, something that sticks with you that definitely makes an influence on your path, really. Can you share that with us? So for my own personal experience, the sort of moment that I remember best is pulling a book from the library called Magic House of Numbers. And it was this book of math patterns and brain teasers and whatnot. I love that book and I would just keep checking it out over and over. And one of the first things in that book was the multiples of nine written down in vertical fashion, 9, 18, 27, 36, 45, and so on. And that's, I don't know, I must not have ever seen it in a multiplication table before. So that was the first time I can remember seeing the numbers written that way and realizing that, you know, there's a pattern to the ones column and there's a pattern in the tens column. And then in the book, it was like, add the digits of each of those numbers together. So four plus five is nine, three plus six is nine, two plus seven is nine, and so on. And that was just like totally Mm -hmm. mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Like what? How did they do that? (laughs) That multiples of nine like the digits always add up to nine. Like even if they added up to something consistent, why would it be nine? Like the number that we're multiplying by. So I just found that to be like super fascinating, really cool. And that was, I think that's what set me sort of on this journey of like, wow, there's all this stuff to discover in math that you don't know about. That's just, sort of hidden in plain sight. That's an amazing memory. And right away, in my mind, what's the alarm bell is sounding is that unless I heard incorrectly, it sounds like this was from a book that you seeked out. This wasn't an experience that we as educators sort of brought to you. Is that true? That is true in this case. Yes. So I'm thinking to myself, like right there, you, I want to call you a lucky one who sort of something (laughs) in you, like you said, you couldn't figure it out. And even to this day, I'm sure you can articulate some of the things about math that make it interesting to you. But as like a young child trying to articulate, why do I want to go look for this, you know, for a book about math? And, and obviously, there's something magical about that aha moment you have when you find something really interesting, which really is all of mathematics, like it's all lurking beneath the surface. So, you know, I heard you earlier talking about for you, you were inspired to do these things when you were younger, and it inspired you to go on and learn math, and then eventually open up your Math Plus Academy and really trying to change the way we teach math. I'm wondering, though, for those of us, and I and John, I think would agree, we were sort of like you where like in school, we kind of enjoyed the traditional math class. Like for me, it was very different. I enjoyed it because I knew that I could do that game. I could memorize stuff. And to me, it just seemed easy. It felt easy. What do you say to teachers who 
are like us who came out of that system and it worked for us. Like we weren't challenged by it. I mean, I wasn't inspired by it like you were, but at the end of the day, it's like if we did well in math class, we tend to end up teaching math. So how do we put ourselves in the same frame of mind as maybe some of our students who are there who aren't like us or aren't like those students who we were in the classroom? Like, how do we change that? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. So that's a great question, right? Because I, mean, I do believe that people have sort of things that they're drawn to when they're young. If you have little kids, you know that. And so I don't know why I was drawn to math, but certainly not everyone is drawn to math. I do think, though, that we can make math irresistible. We can make math moments that matter to use, you know, words that we would use, right? Like, if you can show an entire class the multiples of nine, just ask them, what do you see, right? What do you notice and what do you wonder? And those moments can be made to happen. And I think if you do that, you're going to get more and more students who maybe don't have that natural affinity for math to be like, oh, wait, that's kind of cool. I want to learn about that. And I think we've all had teachers like, you know, I have an affinity for math. I do not have an affinity for literature or language arts, right? Like those classes were never that fun to me. I knew how to read, but I didn't really want to read like fiction books or, you know, American lit or English lit or whatever. But I did have a teacher in high school who, I'm not even sure I could put my finger on it, but something about that class was like, I want to go to this class. I want to learn about this stuff. The way it's presented, the way we talk about it is really interesting, right? And that's an exception. But that tells you the power that teachers have, right? Even if you don't have an affinity for something, that doesn't mean we can't attract you to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm looking at the power of, like you said, the notice and wonder of even just showing the nines times tables. Like I know so many teachers in their mind would say, well, they'd say a bunch of things. They'd say things like, you know, students don't know their math facts and we have to do blank, right? So it's like in your mind, we have to do this boring repetition stuff, like the way we memorized our times tables. When to me, what you just shared on the podcast, it sounds like an amazing way to get kids to play with their times tables, in particular the nines times tables, and explore it from like a conceptual standpoint, right? Like throw a bunch of tiles on the table and it's like, try to figure this out. Why does this happen? What's going on here as you start shifting the arrays, like a one by nine array and a two by nine array? Like what's going on here? And why can both the digits add to nine and then also the multiplication, like why does it both work? And just letting kids tinker 
And there's so much learning to be done there. So I think that's like a big takeaway, I think, even just for listeners so far, and we're just barely in here. It absolutely is. And I think the other piece of that is too, when you start to show those things and kids start to sort of discover them on their own, hopefully what you're going to get is the why question, right? Why is this true? Not just, is it true? And you could certainly just memorize this fact, right? And when we teach um, divisibility rules, oftentimes, right, this is where this comes up, right? If you want to know if the numbers are multiple of nine, you just add the digits up and check. But Again, depending on how you present it, you get that why question or you don't. It can present as, as if it's a fact and we should just memorize it. Or you can present it as, whoa, this is crazy. Why is this even true? Let's go figure it out, right? And even more important than that to me is like, what if? So like, wait a minute now. I know about the nines. What about the eights? Like, is there something magical about the eights? Is there something magical about the tens or the elevens? It makes you start to wonder about other things that are you know, tangent or not tangent, but related to that nines thing, right? And then all of a sudden you're off and running on all kinds of different questions. When you brought that example up, it was like something that I've been obsessed with since I started teaching is math as a mystery, you know, like, like, and this falls exactly in line with what I was thinking. And in that story you shared about your picking up that book, I was in teacher's college and I remember I was taking a class on, this is sound funny and like, long time ago, we had teachers classes on like how to use the library in math class. And uh, I guess the class was all about resources. And we were in the library and I was looking up resources for math. And I stumbled across a book which had math tricks in it, like magic math, you know. And I remember seeing a math trick where you could write down any three digit number you like. And then what you want to do is reverse those digits. So if you wrote one, two, three, now you have the reversed digits are three, two, one. And what you wanted to do was subtract subtract those from each other and then take that new answer and reverse those digits and you add those two results together, Uh, the the new number and the new new number. And then what always happens is you get, I think, 1,028, no matter what, no matter what three digits you chose. And when I read this, I went like, this is one way I can use in my classroom to like make math this mystery box. Kids are going to be blown away that this actually happened. This is true. Like, how is it true that no matter what three-digit number we chose, that this always works? And, you know, I added a little pizzazz to the end of it. I went to the textbook and I went to page 102 and then looked up the eighth word. And so I memorized that eighth word. And so then I said, okay, let's grab a book. Can you guys turn to... Uh, take the first three digits of the number that you created out of all that, turn to that page number. And I still hadn't said the number out loud. And so they all end up turning to page 102. And then I'm like, okay, count the eighth word in. And they all look like, don't tell me what that word is. I'm going to tell you what that word is. So then I just say the word and they're all like jaws are dropping, right? It's like, what, how did that happen? And it's that math is a mystery. Like you said, how can we bring that out into the open more so that we can, like what Kyle said, it's like, they might not have the affinity to it, but we can draw that affinity in. Absolutely. I love that example. That's great. So Raj, I've had the pleasure of attending your presentation last year at NCTM. And actually in that presentation, I remember you sharing that example of the nines times tables. And to me, that was great. And really the big messaging, and you've already mentioned it, was making math irresistible. So what are some other ways that you can help or that teachers can think about how to make math irresistible in their own classroom? Like I'm a big advocate and John's a big advocate that everybody's different and there's different ways to approach how we teach our students. Like it doesn't all have to look exactly the same. And I think some of that's part of the fun. 
So are there any other ideas that you have for people who are out there and they're thinking like, how do I make math irresistible for my students? Do you have like some go-to strategies? I have a few go-to strategies. I mean, I'm really big on making sure that we spend the first couple of minutes just giving students a chance to make sense of things and get them curious about what this thing is. I think one of the big problems of math class and classes in general in school is that As someone once said to me, you know, the biggest problem in education is the giving of answers to questions that have not yet been asked. Like, how many times do we walk in and we're like, today we're going to learn about factoring polynomials. Like, nobody cares, but that's what I have to teach you because you need to know this by the end of the year, right? And why don't we spend a few minutes thinking about why is this math, why do they need it, and why is it interesting? I was in a classroom the other day where they were teaching geometry and they were doing transformations. And there was a statement in there where, let me see if I can remember it. If you take a pre-image and you reflect it over two parallel lines, it's a translation. And the teachers just come in and they're like, you need to know this. Anytime you reflect something over two (laughs) parallel lines, it's a translation. I'm thinking to myself, wait, that thought right there is so magical, so incredible. Like, how is it even possible that two reflections are a translation? Like, what? And if the lines aren't parallel, then it's a rotation. Like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. That should not be yeah. obvious. Like, why does yeah, that Yeah, that should not be obvious to anyone. Why are we stating this as a fact? Like, duh, of course. No, y- you should play with that. You should get out some patty paper. You should draw an object. You should reflect it twice. You should look at the pre-image and the post-image and be like, wait, you could actually have just slid this thing over and it would be the same. Why is that? So. If we come at it from a perspective of like, what is the mystery here? What's interesting? What can the kids discover? Spend five or 10 minutes on that. And then, yeah, at the end of class, if you want to say, look, okay, you should probably know this because it's going to be on a test. Fine. But like, let's discover it a little let's bit. Let's have some yeah, fun up front. Come on. You're yeah. taking all the fun out of the math. And really, almost everything in the book, it took people hundreds of years to figure out what's in the book, right? Yep. And we're presenting it as mm-hmm. if you should just know it. Like, no, you shouldn't. You're 12. (laughs) So, okay, so you asked me about my go-to strategies, and I went on the soapbox. So let me jump off the soapbox and talk about my go-to strategies. You can stay up there. I kind (laughs) of like you here, actually. I want to hear them all. Um, (laughs) A couple of my go-to strategies are, I think, notice and wonder, right? If you take a problem, you strip out all the words, you just give the scenario, and you just ask kids, what do they notice? What do they wonder? It opens it up a lot. I think a lot of teachers are aware of this stuff. It's become sort of famous. So that's one simple one. But Mm -hmm. another one that I really love is would you rather? And so I always give this example of like a lot of the problems in our textbooks, even if they're word problems, they're kind of boring. Maybe they're in a context, but probably not a context that most people would care about. But if you put two boring problems against each other and you ask would you rather, you often get something that's so much more interesting. So for example, if I said, how much is a pound of dimes worth? You might be like, well, I don't know. And I don't really care. I guess I could figure it out. I could look up how much they weigh and whatnot. When I ask you how much is a pound of quarters worth, you also might say, yeah, whatever. I don't know. But then if I ask, would you rather have a pound of dimes or a pound of quarters? And I juxtapose those two things. The whole room is like, oh yeah, dude, I want the dime. No, no, no. We should get the quarters. The quarters are worth more. Like you just generate Mm -hmm. this conversation and it's magical because both of those things in and of themselves are boring. Mm -hmm. You really don't care, right? Or if you work at a bank or something, I don't know. But when you put them against each other, you get something interesting. And you can do this really easily. Like, would you rather have 
10% off of something or 10% more. You know, all these questions just pop right out once you get in the routine of asking them. And they lead to interesting math. Something that's popping into my head, there's Pi Day is coming up as we're recording this. It's a little over a week away. It's actually, for those listening, Pi Day is the day after my birthday. So I really razz my mom about that, that I'm like, she couldn't just hold on for one more day and let me be born on Pi <laughs> that's Day. That's so not <laughs> nice. That's, my wife is born on Pi Day, so. <laughs> no, there you go. So that's neither here nor there. But something on my mind, I'm going to be going to Walkerville High School in my district on this coming Friday. They're doing a Pi Day. And, you know, the question that I'm tinkering with in my mind right now, last year I did Pi Day there and that's where I came up with the task, the tile circle, which is a really cool task to kind of elicit the circumference of the circle and the area of the circle and doing it very visually and conceptually. This year, I've got this pizza problem on my mind and I'm sure you know it, that would you rather two 12-inch pizzas, like a medium, two mediums, which typically is like 12 inches in diameter, or a large, which is like 18 inches in diameter, or something along those lines. So playing with the different diameters and, you know, the number of pizzas and which one's better and which one's going to have more crust or let, you know, all of these ideas are things that we can elicit through that would you rather structure. And John, do you want to share maybe like a resource where people can find would you rather there? I know that you're big on it with your math fight structure. Yeah. When you brought that up, Raj, about just putting two things together, it's almost like you're creating this moment where you're asking students to argue and, or like pick a side and defend it. And that's been a huge change in my classroom for creating discussions. And, you know, I've been presenting for the last year or so on like how to start a math fight in your classroom. And one of those resources is a Would You Rather from John Stevens. I think it's WouldYouRatherMath.com. Tons of great stuff there, right? Like, and I never thought of it that way where you're really putting two boring problems together. And as soon as you do that, it becomes this math fight, which is amazing. Like I just didn't think of two sides and then put them together. It was just kind of like, would you rather this or would you rather that? Is it always the way I've been phrasing it? Like you're creating an argument in your class. Like how can you create more math fights? Because kids have to justify and argue and defend and critically think about their reasonings. Such great resources there. On John Stevens' site, would you rather math.com? The other one that I'm going to, like, maybe you were going to say this, and I don't want to maybe jump on your toes here, but the other one that is great is which one doesn't belong for that same reason? You got four options, and one of those doesn't belong with the other, but all of them don't belong for a reason, which is the best part of which one doesn't belong, which is WODB.ca. It's a website created by Mary Barassa based on Christopher Danielson's book, Which One Doesn't Belong. So those are two that I use for sure in my classroom on a regular basis. So I'm glad you brought Would You Rather Up by John. Yeah. And thanks for pointing out those resources because they're both fantastic. I wanted you to keep going because I know that you've got in that presentation you gave, you talked about ways to you know, change math, help with this, make math irresistible. And I think one thing you've been touching on right now has been how to spark curiosity and keep going with that. But there's another thing that I find very interesting, I think you talked about is called the culture of engagement and perseverance. How important is it that the culture of our room has to change also? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. So the thing that has really fascinated me, I guess, for the last several years is I've done so many really interesting math problems in my life because I'm one of these people who goes and gets books and tries to find puzzles and all that stuff. And I bring them into my class. And I'm like thinking to myself, this is going to be amazing. There's so much cool math in this problem. And then I throw it up there and everybody's like dead silent. And you're like, wait, guys, this is an amazing problem. Like, come on. And then dead yeah, silent. Like, no, no, it's and not. so I'm like, how, what, 
Like, I'm a good teacher. Like, what the heck? <laughs> and so I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, what is going on here? And the thing that hit me one day, because I have three children, but I have two boys who are kind of in their teens right now and have been addicted to video games forever, right? And I love video games. I mean, I played Tetris and all these other things growing up. It occurred to me that video game designers... Like they know how to make stuff addictive. And while a lot of people think, oh, it's because it's on an iPad, you know, and it makes noise and it has a shiny screen. It's like, no, they're playing with human psychology in ways that we don't even understand. And so I went and dove into this, like, how do they do it? How do they get people to sling birds at pigs? Like, that's so stupid. But billions of hours have been spent slinging birds at pigs, right? Angry birds. Or rotating tetrominoes to make lines, Tetris, which I've spent way too much time doing. And what I discovered is like, there's these principles that they're using. And so I started using them in my class. And all of a sudden, like kids are, they're like, oh, we want to do this math and we'll actually persevere in doing it. And part of it is starting with that curiosity, right? You got to get that hook so that they want to lean in, right? But then once they do, how do you keep that sort of rolling? And what I realized is like, you got to give students some control over the task. And a lot of times, if you just open up the problem solving right there, you've given them some control. And then I think the key piece is, We have to be starting with questions that are really, really easy, where every single person in the room can make sense of that first question. And I think that was the big mistake that I was making was like, I knew the problem was awesome. And I knew if they got into it, it would be really cool. And it's really cool math. But the first question, a lot of kids would be like, well, I don't know what to do with that. And I don't really care. So like, I got to get them curious, we talked about. And then I have to ask them a question where they can answer it right off the bat. And once you do that, then the ball starts to get rolling. People start to talk, conversation starts to build, and then they can dive in and get into that space where they want to persevere and do stuff because kids will persevere at video games. That much we know. I'm just imagining like if video games didn't like that first level, you know, or that first stage, or even just like the, the stage where you're trying to learn how this world works or this game works, it's always super easy to get into and there's little explanation. It's like trial and error to begin. And if video games didn't have that, I'm imagining your example of Angry Birds. It's like you just try to see what happens. Like you pull the thing back and you see what happens. And you're like, oh, I get how this works. It's like immediate. And if video games didn't have that, if you can imagine that they were complex instructions to start or complex things that kids would just not do it. So how can we do that yeah. in class? Like awesome, right? Yes. I love that you said that video games don't have instructions. You don't have to read the rules to play Angry Birds, right? You just jump right in, you put your finger on that thing and let it rip. And what's awesome about level one is pretty much no matter what you do on level one of Angry Birds, you're going to kill the first pig, right? So that's that super easy question. Like you're going to have success right off the bat. Whether you love pigs or not, you're going to kill one. That's right. You know, and I always bring... (laughs) You know, it's funny. Sorry. I was just going to say, I always tell teachers like, remember, like no kid has ever asked, when am I ever going to use this? on video games, right? Like nobody needs to know oh, man. how to sling a bird at a pig. Like, you know, you just don't. Rush, you're <laughs> going to get me going here. You're hitting so many things. I got all these notes <laughs> jotted down. I'm not going to be able to talk about them all, but I'm going to mention the one that you just said there, which is when are we ever going to use this? And to me, it took me so long before I realized kids, when they ask that question, they're not actually asking that question. They don't actually know what's wrong. They pin it on this idea of when am I ever going to use this? But it's more like what they're saying is I have no idea what's happening. I don't enjoy this and I don't know what the point of this is. And the only way I can communicate that without embarrassing myself and saying I'm completely lost is that I 
don't see the value in learning this thing, but they don't really care about learning about something that they need for the real world. They just want to feel like there's a point to what they're doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that they're going to use, you know, a year down the road or five years down the road when they're out and working in society. Yeah, they don't know what they want to be. Again, they're 12, right? Like, I didn't know what I wanted to be until I was 37. (laughs) So, you know, that question is not, you're exactly right. It's not really saying, tell me when I'm literally going to use this. It's saying, you didn't engage me and I don't understand this. And I, you know, it hasn't been made. You didn't give me a point for why I would care about this. Right, right, right. Well, I love how it's so awesome when you hear people articulating things in slightly different ways. And you, know, you talked about the hook to get kids to lean in. So that's that curiosity. We would call that the sparking curiosity piece. There's so many ways to do it. Then I really like how you mentioned this idea of control, giving kids the opportunity to make decisions. And I'm sure this conversation will eventually head down the road of problem solving, right? Like getting kids to actually giving them the opportunity to think. And we just had Dan Finkel on episode 11, and he talked about just simple math games. And he mentioned this idea of choice. And I hear that in what you just said is giving kids games that give students the choice instead of just following rules. And then when you said making it easy enough, just like a video game, that first level, we talk a lot about making tasks and starting our class, making it very accessible for students and low floor, high ceiling. And it's just great to hear it coming out in different ways, because the more ways, the more perspective we have on this idea, the better off we're going to be in trying to figure out how that looks and sounds like in our own classrooms. Yeah, totally. And just to build off your the low barrier thing, right? We hear this term thrown around a lot with rich tasks, which is another term that people throw around. And some problems have that sort of low barrierness to them built in. A lot of times problems that are visual, kids can start to make sense of them without any prompting at all. But a lot of times the task needs the teacher to really be cognizant about, you know, I know my kids best. Is every child in my class really going to be able to make sense of this right off the bat? Um, Okay, maybe not. So let me think about what is an easy question I can get them started on. Maybe I start with a simpler version of the problem, right? Maybe I have them focus on one very specific detail. We have a conversation about that. And then once I sense that, okay, everyone has had some time to have a successful moment and make sense of what's going on, then I let them go. Okay, guys, work collaboratively. Figure this thing out. Here are your tools. I'll come around and make sure you guys are okay. But maintaining that curiosity, right? It sounds like there's a lot for us to be thinking about. And I know I wasn't thinking that way for the good first chunk of my career, I would just sort of thought like, I just know the content and I'm just going to go in there and everybody's going to love it as much as I do. And the reality is, it just doesn't work quite that way. (laughs) So your your steps here. Yeah. We've all been on this journey together, right? Of thinking we know what we're doing and we know the content and kids should just follow along and we bring all this enthusiasm. So why shouldn't they think we're cool and do the math? But there's so much more to it. And you learn every day, you learn something new or you learn from somebody else. And I love it too what you said, like sometimes you have these thoughts in your mind and then someone else says something you're like, oh my God, that's in one sentence, that is exactly what I was thinking. And then it helps you grow and get better. Right. You know, I want to just touch on a little bit about getting those kids easily into that problem to begin. And Kyle and I have done a lot of thinking on that. Like, why is it that our kids, if we can get them easy, like that low floor in, like what keeps them around? Like sometimes the kids, once they get in, They get invested in that problem and then they just don't want to quit. You know, like they've already kind of sunk their feet in and now they're in too deep. And so they keep going. You know, when we did some reading on that, we came across this behavioral economics idea called the sunk cost fallacy. 
which is like when you invest time or money into something and then you have to make a decision like, do I want to quit this or do I not want to quit this or I want to keep going with this? Most people will keep going with it because you put in time or money into something. For example, I had a car that was pretty crappy. My first car, terrible car. It had the automatic seatbelts. When you sat in this car, you closed the door, turned the car on, the thing went up over your shoulder. And anyway, sidetrack. I came across, it was winter, the heater went in the car and I had to pay money to get the heater fixed. So I was like, okay, I got to do that. I paid money, I paid like a thousand bucks. Let's get the heater fixed. And then the car door wouldn't open. And so I was like, okay, so do I pay money, more money to get the car door open or do I get rid of this car? You know, in your mind, everyone has this decision. It's like, okay, well, I just paid a thousand dollars to get the heater fixed. So I should pay to get the car door open. Otherwise, I just wasted the thousand dollars to get the heater fixed. Like that's the sunk cost fallacy because you're using this money that's already gone. You already sunk that cost in. It's gone. It doesn't, shouldn't have an actual effect on your next decision. Like I should just logically think, okay, no, I shouldn't pay this thousand dollars now. You can't use stuff that's already gone to help you make the new decision. That's the sunk cost fallacy. So you want to avoid loss. That's the idea. It's like you just don't want to avoid the loss that you already had. So you try to make decisions based on avoiding that loss. And so I think what's happening with low floor, high ceiling tasks is kids are trying to avoid some of that time lost. Like you're, you're using their own behavioral economic understanding of themselves against themselves in a good way. You got them in the door by doing this easy little task and then another easy little task or a task that they can access. And so then when it starts to get hot or harder, they don't want to avoid all the loss that they had is like, oh, that was a waste. They keep going. And I think for us, that's what's happening with the low floor, high ceiling tests. Right, right. Well, you know, it's really interesting because it seems like there's so many people out there that have so many interesting things to say about math and some tend to kind of focus maybe more or at least people interpret their focus to be more on one thing over another. And, you know, big things out there are things like curiosity. And, you know, you have some people that seem to kind of really be pushing this idea of getting kids engaged in problems. And you've kind of mentioned this idea. It's like changing the culture and the mindset of students. So, by getting them into this problem, and you had mentioned monitoring to see how they're doing, could we talk a little bit about the things that we need to change about the math class? I think that part of what you've already mentioned with video games really gets at this, this idea that kids tend to give up too easily in math class. Like, what are you seeing when you use some of these, we'll call it like game mechanics in your planning and I guess delivery of a math lesson? Like, how is that affecting student mindset and maybe even the culture in our classroom? Because so far, you haven't really talked about things the way I remember math class. And early in my career, it was very like me telling kids and really almost building this culture that kids should expect that I'm going to do all the work, right? And I'm going to explain everything. I'm going to tell you this and tell you that and tell you this. And then I found kids would give up really easily. Like, how is this affecting how kids learn in terms of the culture and the mindset in the classroom? Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. 
So that was a deep question. <laughs> Let me see if I can break it into a few parts. I think there are a lot of things there to unpack. Let's see. One of them is I think a lot of teachers are feeling like my students aren't motivated. And I don't know if I can really trust handing the, the reins over to them. Like if I give them the responsibility of thinking and talking about their thinking and all these other things, I could be met with a lot of dead silence. And when that happens, I will panic and then go back into my typical direct instruction mode. And I know that not everybody teaches that way, but I've recently been in some high school classrooms where it was very traditional. And, you know, the way that we all learned it, sitting in rows and listening to the teacher and taking notes. And the thing that struck me about that was that if you're the kind of person that is a rule follower, which is what I was, who could sit there and just take notes and follow along, you could do well in math. You would get A's. Like, that. that's how I got A's. But if you're the kind of person who needs more time to make sense of stuff, who maybe doesn't always pay attention because honestly, it's not that much fun to sit there for eight hours and take notes, then that math isn't going to make any sense to you. You're not going to do anything with it. And on top of that, the teacher, because the teacher's doing all the work, has no idea what anyone knows or what anyone doesn't know. And it's like one of these amazing experiences I had recently was I got a teacher, we got a teacher to just give a problem, put the kids at vertical marker boards and in pairs of two or three, in groups of two or three, and let them go. And it was the most boring problem you could imagine. It was, they were doing exponents. And it was like, X to a mystery power times X to another mystery power is X to the 20th. And then you had to find like, what are all the powers? What are all the exponents that make that work? And they just started dabbling in what is, you know, X cubed is X times X times X, right? So they were trying to make, so that's not a very engaging task. You could easily say, well, when am I ever going to use this? But every single person in that class was at the board. They were talking, they were working, they were thinking. And it was an amazing experience. And it's just like changing the framework of like, you guys are going to be standing up. It's hard to hide when you're all standing up. You've got partners. So if you're stuck, you can look at each other's work. You can actually cheat off of other people in the room and that's okay. Oh, what are these guys doing? They used a zero. You can use a zero in this thing. What does it mean? X to the zero. Like, wait, negatives. You can put a negative power in there. And so it generated all this amazing conversation. And these kids who were labeled as, you know, the low achieving kids who never participate and don't pay attention and they're never going to get it. They're all doing math. And then we bring this conversation together. So a lot of it too is the mindset of the teacher. So we talk about the student mindset, but what about the mindset of the teacher? Are you using those terms like these are my low kids, these are my high kids? There's no such thing as low kids and high kids. There's kids presently struggling with multiplication, but they're not low kids. There's kids presently struggling with fractions, but they're not low kids. Math is about thinking everyone can think. So like we got to change the teacher mindset too. You got to walk in there thinking, you know what? All my kids are capable and it's my job to figure out what they're capable of and bring it out of them. Isn't that why we got into teaching in the first place? I love that. It's so important to be looking at things from like an asset-based approach. You know, call it optimistic, call it growth mindset, call it whatever you want. But if I walk into a room and I'm basically thinking from a deficit right away that these kids don't know this and they don't enjoy that and they don't pay attention, now I start to look at it and think of what do they have? Because they have something. They've got lots in there. I've got to figure out what it is. And I think some of your strategies early on talking about how do we lower the floor and hook all of my students in. And that does take a lot of thinking to do. But the reason why, like I only realized this recently is a lot of these students, they shut down from math, not because they are bad people. It's like math was bad to them 
at some point, whether it was in grade one or some kids are coming to us in kindergarten so far behind some of their peers, let alone like put aside this idea that some kids are born on December 31st and others are born on January 1st and they are literally like a year apart. But yet, so I've spent like an extra year on this planet and I'm playing at the Pentomino station over there in kindergarten class with a kid who's basically a year younger than me. And right there, you've got this huge, huge gap in terms of just your experience. But then also, who knows what's going on at home, if anything. And these kids have really had, a lot of them have really had a struggle along, whether it's math-based or maybe it's just, you know, at home, the environment that they're in and those types of things, the things they have or don't have. So I really appreciate you saying that. Raj, you mentioned that you were in some high schools lately and some classrooms. Uh, We also know that you have this awesome thing called Math Plus Academy, We'd love for you to just fill us in and our listeners on like what that is and maybe what inspired you. I think we get what inspired you to create the organization, but maybe just fill us in on some details and where we can go to have a peek at this. Sure, sure. So I started this for two reasons. I started it because I had a five-year-old who was going to kindergarten and he was like me. He had this affinity for math. He knew his addition, subtraction, and the teachers were like, you know, at the end of kindergarten, if he could add one and two to all of his single digits, we'd be pretty happy. And I'm like, dude, this kid can like, he knows what three times three is. He's already making sense of multiplication. What are you going to do with him? And they're like, well, we'll, you know, a little bit of hand wringing there. I'm like, okay. And there's no place for kids who like math to go to get more math. If your kid's good at music, you put him in music lessons, piano and guitar or whatever. If your kid's good at soccer, you put him in the soccer league. And they're really good. You put him in the travel soccer. You know, there's all these levels that you can experience outside of school, right? It's not just gym class if your kid is good at soccer. There's no place for kids who are good at math. So I was like, let's build a place where kids who like math and even kids who don't can come and discover how amazing math is and learn deeper and learn more interesting things. So that's one of the main reasons I built it. And the other reason I built it was because I worked at Intel and I did a lot of hiring at Intel and almost everyone we hired had a PhD in something science related, and almost all of them were not American. And I was like, well, what happened to all the American scientists? Where are they? And it's like, we're not making enough of them because most of them decided that math isn't good, right? Like they don't like math. So you don't like math, you're not going to do science. Math is the language of science, right? So two reasons why I did this. And so I've just I've spent the last 11 years building these classes and lessons and whatnot for grades K through eight, where kids can come in once a week, be taught by a certified teacher, in a really small group environment and explore different things like why are the multiples of nine have digits that add up to nine? Or we teach this thing called magic of 11, which is a really cool way to do your multiples of 11 when you get into double digits and just make it fun for them. So that's what I do. I got three of these locations in Columbus, Ohio. It's called Math Plus Academy. People can find intel on my website, mathplusacademy.com. Is there digital resources that say I'm in California right now and that sounds like a great idea? Is there digital resources we could access on that or is it just a, a physical place? Great question. So everyone always asks me like, do you do this online? And the answer is no. And <laughs> the reason the answer is no <laughs> <laughs> is, be- yeah, right? <laughs> the reason the answer is no is I think the teacher is the most important person in the room. Gotcha. And I think that it's really difficult to have those same experiences that you can have in a classroom as you can have online. Exactly. Right. So you can learn things online. Like if you're an adult, I love online learning, right? Because you already come to the situation motivated right. and ready and you want to learn this thing. And so, and you're probably paying for this course. So you've made that, you have that sunk cost, right? Like you already paid for it. You got it. You better do it. But if you're seven, right. you know, <laughs> right. you're, 
you got to be engaged. Like someone has to do some of that work for right. you or with you. Right. Yeah. So I really feel like you got to have that. And then the other piece of it is I think the communication between the kids is super important. Right. And how do for I give sure. that online experience of a classroom? That's really difficult. So right now it's all brick and mortar because I think that's super important. I love how you, you know, articulated the importance, like especially for students learning. You know, I would hate to see students going to this online learning environment where they don't actually get to interact with one another and those right. types of things. I mean, those are the moments and, we love, you know, right? Like that's, them, the amazing right. thing about a classroom is like kids talking to each other and discovering from each other and then talking to each other. The best part. I just look at digital tools can be super helpful in a student's journey, but it has to be like really, really well thought out. It has to be really intentional. And I want to use the word limiting. Like you have to limit how much you're doing, right? It's like, it's not going to fix the quote unquote problem. It's not going to change everything. It might be used to help extend students thinking, but like that environment in the classroom, like I think it all starts there, just like you said. So thanks so much for sharing that. Well, before we wrap up, we want to ask you what's on your mind lately? Like what's kind of the next thing for you right now? Any projects on the go that we should be watching for? Maybe some conferences coming up and then we'll take a few minutes to wrap up and John and I will do some reflections before taking off for the day? Oh, man, you guys ask hard questions. What is coming up? Well, I think I really want to dive into this notion of deeper of like making math irresistible. And I've done a lot of this work with the video games. I think it seems to resonate with teachers. It gives them some sense of hope of like, you know what? It is possible. If kids can engage in slinging birds of pigs, they can engage in math too, right? So I just want to keep going down that path. I just want to learn. Like, what more can I learn? You guys are probably familiar with Peter Liliadal's work of building thinking classrooms. Yeah, yeah for sure. And one of the things in there is oh, that vertical sure. whiteboard, right? Which I mentioned earlier, like getting kids up at a whiteboard mm -hmm. and working uh, collaboratively. Mm -hmm. And now that I've seen, like, I have seen incredible transformations when teachers do that. And it's such a simple thing. So it's like, I'm just looking for like, what are these really simple ideas that we can implement tomorrow, assuming we have a few whiteboards, right? That will absolutely just completely change the dynamic of the classroom. It's like that video game aspect, but now for teachers too. It's like, what can I help my other teachers in small win, right? What's a small win that can radically change your classroom so that you want to do the next win as a teacher, not as a student? I love that you said that too, because when they see that happen in their own classrooms, it gives them hope too, right? We said you got to monitor for the hope of success of the students, but we should be monitoring for the hope of success of the teachers too, right? Like you start to get those wins and you're like, oh, I can do this. And you know what? These kids, they're so much more capable than I thought they were. And when you hear a teacher say that, that is so incredible. For sure. Like I've seen teachers do this where, you know, they've come from a fairly traditional sort of approach to delivering a lesson, very procedural in nature. And, you know, and again, you meet everyone where they are, just like with our students. For a lot of people, it's not like they chose not to be interesting with their students. It's like they just are like, I don't know how. I'm not sure. How do I make this a reality? And I feel like that small win that you just referenced, the vertical non-permanent, when I see teachers do that, even if they continue teaching like from more of a procedural standpoint or more of a quote unquote traditional approach to teaching math class, I feel like it's like they, they see it. It's like a breadcrumb, right? And they're like, huh, 
I might be able to do something with this. And it's almost like an addiction, right? Now you're like, I want to engage them even more. I want to make this even more interesting. And then all of a sudden, I see many teachers sort of follow that path and it just leads them to doing great things. So yeah, what a great win. We actually will have Peter coming on the podcast in a few weeks time as well. So I don't know what episode he'll be yet, but it will be after this one. And we can't wait to chat oh, awesome. with him. So all that'll right. be really exciting as that, well. Because it's amazing stuff. Raj, we want to thank you so much for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We've got a ton of takeaways, and we know that the people listening also are walking away from this episode with like nodding their heads going, yep, yep, yep. So thanks so much. We look forward to talking with you in the future. And I think from this conversation, Kyle and I have been chatting. We want to bring you back on, you know, a little bit later. So uh, would you be okay with coming back on and chatting with us a little bit in about six months to be like, what's going on with Raj? What do you think about that? Of course. There's nothing I'd rather do at 8 a.m. on a Sunday than be online with you guys. We want to thank you one more time, Raj, for joining us here. I'm sure you at home or on the run or in the car, wherever you are right now, again, we're nodding along while Raj spoke about the many things that you heard in this episode. Just like I mentioned in the intro, I was nodding along. I'm sure you were too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And after we hung up or after we ended the recording, we kind of extended the conversation with Raj. And, you know, something he felt like we didn't make clear enough. So we promised we would put this in the outro was this idea around like we don't want to say or get the impression that direct instruction or any form of direct instruction is like off limits in our math classroom because it actually does have a role like John you know our stance and Mm -hmm, it sounds like mm -hmm. Raj's stance is quite similar so help people understand who might be just listening to our podcast for the first time like what are we talking about here yeah and uh, we mentioned this in our live webinar that we ran a time of this recording a couple I guess a month ago now we want our class classroom to be more of a flipped math classroom. And you know, when we talk about flipped math classroom, we're not talking about a video approach classroom, not like go watch a video at home. That's not the flipped classroom we are talking about here. And Raj, you know, like what Kyle said, after the recording stopped, he also talked about the same flipped classroom that we talked about. So our view of our classroom is aligning here. And what that flipped classroom actually is, is flipping where your direct instruction happens. So for example, we are starting with a task or a problem in our math classes to get kids engaged, like a low floor, high ceiling task. And then we're allowing our students to productively struggle through that task with their prior knowledge. We're trying to get different concepts that we've already chosen as our learning goals out into the open. And we're providing support for those students so that they can show their abilities to us. Then after that, we kind of share solutions around the room. And that might be a place where we as a teacher need to step in and, and you know, share a, a mini lesson that could happen in groups, but also could happen in a large group. We view that that's where our direct instruction would most likely occur in our classrooms. And in most cases, it does happen there. So sometimes when people listen to us talk about tasks in the classroom, we don't specifically mention direct instruction, but it definitely happens many, 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 many days just at the end of the lesson, not 
at the beginning and not every day. Awesome. Awesome. That's great to know. And, you know, for those of you out there, this isn't a new idea. You know, if you're uh, familiar with Vanderwall's work, the three-part math lesson here in Ontario, where John and I teach, you know, we're big on the three-part math lesson. And that's like kind of what we'd call that consolidation process. We just had Marion Small on the podcast just a couple episodes ago, episode 16. And, you know, she's a big advocate of this idea of the three-part math lesson. And so everything that Raj is discussing today and everything that you and I, John, discuss on previous episodes, as well as that webinar you reference, is about doing just that. So really, we want to make sure that that's clear. And hopefully, we've helped people articulate things. So let's get into our biggest takeaways here, John. Like, What's your biggest takeaway from our conversation with Raj? I got a quick one, just a quick one. And it happened near the end of the episode. And when we asked him about his Math Plus Academy, and I asked him the question about, like, is there digital resources or are there digital resources for teachers or students on his website? And what I really appreciated about what he said, because he just said no. And I appreciated that because he went through some really good thinking and thinking process about why he said no know and why he made that decision. You know, he views math class as the teacher holds a lot of value towards those students. Like a teacher we know from all this podcast and discussions we've had can make or break some of those math lessons. So important is that teacher to be in the room with the students. And so it was really appreciated that he mentioned that. And the other piece is that he mentioned that the students themselves, interaction with each other, discussions, uh, that arguing back and forth, the defending and the reasoning with each other is also so important. And, you know, when things go online, those things go away. You can't control what the teacher, like the teacher's not in the room. And then also you don't get that same collaboration or same arguments when you're online. So I really appreciate it that he's made that choice there. Well, you know, before I get into mine, I wanted to just extend yours a little bit. Like I was really happy to hear him articulate what Math Plus Academy is all about so that people do understand what it is about. Because I feel like anytime I come across any sort of math center, whether it's just like driving in the car through a city that I'm not from or whatever it might be, or maybe I see something advertised online, I immediately get this image of my mind of what many math centers are like, which is like, you know, this idea of like, hey, put your kids in this and we're just going to do rote memorization and just repetition. And we're going to try to quote unquote, fill gaps by learning math facts. Traditionally, you know, there's a lot of math centers out there that do that. And his is really quite different. His is about trying to essentially push that message of making math class irresistible. So I was really excited to hear him articulate that. So people had a better understanding. Uh, For me, my big takeaway was the idea of how the principles of video games and what video game designers use to make video games successful. And some of the pieces he mentioned was like this idea of that hook. And for us, John and I talk about this curiosity, sparking curiosity, like bringing someone in and kind of just kind of letting people tinker around. He also mentioned this idea of giving kids control. And, you know, we've heard Dan Finkel talk about this in previous episodes about giving kids choice, basically allowing them to solve problems, which involves making decisions. And then finally, he said, making it easy enough so that everybody can access the math. And for you and I, we talk about those low floor, high ceiling tasks. And oftentimes it's not the task itself, it's how we introduce it. And for you and I, those are big pieces. So for me, I look at every person who's come on this podcast so far, it's great to hear different ways of articulating these ideas, but really at the core of it, we're all going for the same thing. So it's great for us to have these different perspectives when we think about how we might 
organize and design our math class. And I think today Raj really helped people look at it from another angle, but to try to get to that same goal. So how about uh, you at home? What is your big takeaway from this episode? We want you to share it. You can share with a friend, share with us, share with a colleague. Send us a message on social media at Make Math Moments on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Awesome. Another easy win Raj mentioned was the use of vertical non-permanent surfaces. So if you're interested in getting started, but you're not sure what to do, or maybe you don't have enough whiteboard space or chalkboards in your room, consider grabbing some white book flip charts. For the past year, we've been using white books flip charts as the writable surface we bring with us to different schools and conferences when we lead workshops. Not only are they convenient with a blank white area on the front to write on, but also a grid side on the back. As listeners of this podcast, Whitebook's offering you a special deal. You can get a teacher starter pack, which includes a variety of great things, including little notebooks as well as Whitebook markers for 25% off by checking out mathmoments.whitebook.ca. That's mathmoments.whitebook.ca if you're looking for shipping to Canada. And if you're anywhere else in the world, you're going to head over to mathmoments.whitebook.com. That's mathmoments.whitebook.com. In order to ensure you don't miss out on our new episodes as they come out each Monday, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Awesome. If you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter and Instagram. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 18. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 18. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us and high fives for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, Getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook 
after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.